pleasure to introduce uh, a friend of mine and a former professor at Duke Divinity School that I got to know while I was a student there. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Begbie uh, is the Langford Professor of Theology and Arts at Duke Divinity School. I'm going to mess up his titles, but that's close. Um, that's his focus, is uh, theology through the arts. Um, and as a student, that, that was really uh, interesting and inspiring to me to uh, have someone uh, who's thought very deeply through um, the creativity of the gospel and um, ways of discovery of the gospel that you know, aren't traditional um, uh, and two-dimensional things, but uh, engage and alive in all of our senses. And, um, so I'm really thrilled um, to invite Jeremy to start his Lenten season here at Oak Church. Um, he's going to finish his Lenten season in Cambridge um, with a week of events, including um, uh, former Archbishop Rowan Williams and others. Uh, Mako Fujimura and, and Bruce Herman are doing the quartets over there. Um, are you doing Are you doing the Messian? Yes, as well. Yeah. Messian also, which was at Duke uh, a year or so ago. Uh, so I invite Jeremy, um, and, and but before that, I'm going to invite Katie up to read our, our passage from Luke uh, 23. Thanks. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Thank you, Katie, again. And thank you, Chris. Chris, of course, was indeed our star student at Duke. For, for many years. <laughs> and you can applaud if you want. Um, extraordinary man, I could say so much, um, but I'll forego that. Obviously, his hair used to be very much longer in those days. Very kind of woolly. Did you know him in his previous incarnation? He's now, he's now sort of narrowed in a bit. He's become more perpendicular. It's a, it's a fascinating. You can go all the way if you want. Um, I'm just, is that better? Yeah. A great privilege to be with you at the start of Lent as well. Um, and thank you to the band, I want to say as well. That was beautifully done. I can't resist one comment about the Mighty Fortress, as I got. If anyone ever complains that you're ruining that hymn, 
your version is much closer to the original. Because in Luther's day, it wouldn't have been it would be much closer to believe it or not, research shows. It was a regular, it was lively. It wasn't much closer to what you've just heard. Just use that as ammunition next time someone objects to the way you ruin old hymns. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, pray for us now, we ask. Pray with us. And remind us of all that you have done for us. Fathomless depths of your love and forgiveness. In your name we ask it. Amen. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In what kind of world are those words prayed? Many years ago, I was a pastor, and like most pastors, I used to take funerals, many funerals. And sometime before each service, I used to visit the family to talk about the service. One time, I remember, I phoned the number that I'd been given by the undertaker. And the man on the end of the line sounded unusually hard and formal, ex-military perhaps. Straight away, he told me that he and his friends would be sitting on one side of the church. But that another part of the family should be told to sit on the other side. In fact, they're not part of the family, told me. As far as we're concerned, we don't have anything to do with them, and they certainly won't be coming to the reception. Why is this? Because 30 years ago, the woman in the casket, she married a young man, and he deserted her five years later for another woman. And he'd be at the funeral with his family on this side. And we're not going to let them forget it. And there's you thinking the English were basically nice people. You might think death would be the great level. Surely this was time to bury hatchets. The theme song to the movie Frozen comes to mind. Let it go. Let it go. But no, there was no let it go. They'd been hurt, deeply hurt. And they'd been nursing that hurt, turning it over again and again, round and round in their minds. And now here was a chance to turn their anger outwards and hurt them. All very sad, but there they were, trapped in a world of their own making. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In what kind of world are those words prayed? A world where hurt gets endlessly cycled and recycled. And of course, that's our world too, much of the time. You come to a class tomorrow at Duke, where I teach. You put your hand up in the middle of the lecture and come out with a devastating question that floors me. You make me look a complete idiot in front of my own class. But I'm polite. I'm English. <laughs> I'm trying to be all very Downton Abbey on the outside. <laughs> but inside, I'm seething. Then I'm on, my phone, uh, on the phone to my wife later in the afternoon, she said, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing, nothing, what do you mean? Nothing. Then she's in a bad mood for the rest of the day. And then she takes it out on the cat. Well, we don't have a cat, but if we do. <laughs> and so on. 
we keep the hurt in motion, in circulation. If we don't instantly send it back, we turn it around inside and eventually pass it on in another form. We recycle it. Just think of the Duke-UNC basketball rivalry, played out again last Wednesday, with a kind of fervor you could only call religious. Fueled and stoked and kept alive for so many years with memories, no doubt, of ancient defeats that still need to be avenged. As a non-resident here, how I've longed to say to some of my colleagues, it's only a game. <laughs> but I've also longed to keep my job, so I keep quiet. But sadly, in the rest of our lives, it's most definitely not a game this endless recycling of hurt. It's played out in every street corner, in every schoolyard, in every workplace. Some of you may work for a boss who bullies people, for instance. I had a colleague at work once who used to turn to bullying tactics out of the blue, most of the time in very nice, and suddenly he turned into this book. All very strange, until I found out he'd been chronically bullied at high school. The bullied had become the bully. The hurt had been festering inside and now it was being sent back out again. It's the world we live in. Some of you know those who've been abused as kids. It's well known now that the abused often turn into abusers. Not always, thank God. That secret assault in the dark descends into the unspoken memory, only to burst out in some sexual assault 20 years later. And then what happens? At least in my country, you see the accused being driven from the courtroom. And who turns up? A crowd. A crowd of what? A crowd of abusers. Shouting, bawling, shrieking at the child abuser, pelting the van with stones. An ugly sight. So it goes on. The abuse takes yet another form. It's recycled yet again. Still, where are we living? Is it not just the way things are? Or on the political level, you don't need me to tell you that history shows the oppressed become the oppressors. Think of the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s. The most horrific, um, horrifically oppressive regimes of the 20th century. The story they told was a story of hurt. Humiliated after the First World War, forced to sign a peace treaty which would ruin them even further, the victims of world Jewish conspiracy. They've been the victims. So they thought, now it's their turn, they thought, to become the victimizers. And of course, all too often, the recycling escalates. You beat me in an argument on Monday, I'll make a fool of you with a better argument on Tuesday. A teenager beats a gang member on a street corner in Durham. The whole gang turns up to beat him up the next day. One country fires a mortar bomb, it's answered by a two-day bombardment. Just think of that cauldron of hurt we call the Holy Land, irony of ironies. Centuries of hurt, cycled and recycled, scorched into the very soil. Everyone there has been a victim at some point, and everyone has some reason to feel deeply wounded and aggrieved. And everyone gets used to sending the anger back with double the force. At best, it's contained, but at worst, it expands into obscene spirals of violence, like an echo that gets louder and louder. I was in Jerusalem not so long ago and took this photograph. And if you've been there, you know it's hard not to believe that they're trapped in an endless recycling of rage and resentment, 
always on the verge of breaking out, always on the verge of escalating out of control. It's the world they live in, is it not? Like the Jews in Jerusalem that Good Friday. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. In what kind of world are those words prayed? Again, a world where hurt got endlessly recycled. You put yourself there. You're a Jew. But the Romans rule. It's their empire. And the Romans know how to hurt. They've invaded your land. They've taken your fields and towns. There's always, always a Roman sword in sight. Always a tax that will crush you. Always a law that will stop you getting justice when you deserve it. Always a governor to crucify you. During the boyhood of Jesus, there was a Jewish revolt against Roman taxation, mercilessly crushed. And some of you remember the lines of crucified corpses on the road. You belong to a people who are used to being victims. It's your history, and it's got into your soul. The engine of hurt is turning inside you. And along with the others, you've learned to hate the enemy. You dream of revolt, overthrowing the Romans, reclaiming your land, massacring the oppressor. God knows the Romans deserve it. It's the only way to get justice. That's just the world we live in. So it seems. Until, until one day in Jerusalem, we bump into someone very different. Someone who doesn't seem to be trapped by the cycles of hurt which drag us down. He's hated by the Jewish authorities, but gives back no hatred. He's resented by the would-be revolutionaries, but gives back no bitterness. He's despised by the crowd who cry for his blood, but he asks for no one's blood. And now he's dragged to his execution site, stripped naked, abused, thrown onto a beam of wood. What do we see? Well, records of the time show that this was the moment above all when the criminals cursed their executioners the moment when they spat and shrieked vile words of hatred as the nails were driven through hands and feet. But not here. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What's going on? Here, in one person, in one man, the cycle is broken. Ancient recycling of hurt and rehurt, the perpetual round of revenge and counter revenge. Here it's halted, stopped. But so what? This is all very inspiring. But even if it's true, what could it possibly have to do with me? How could it connect with Oak Church 2015? To see that, we need to step right back and get the big picture. Or else we'll be just like those who Jesus said didn't know what they're doing. We won't know what was going on here unless we get the bigger picture. Now, when I was a, a child back in the UK, there used to be a, a game show where they showed a, 
That's actually a long time ago now, but anyhow, they showed the teams, the two teams, a photo of an ordinary object very, very close up, like a coin, or a leaf, or a screw. And at first you didn't have a clue what it was. It was just odd, strange, weird. And slowly they pulled the camera back and you saw more and more of it. The first team to recognize what the object was won the point. And occasionally they pulled back the camera further and you get a bonus point if you could be the first to recognize the type of object it was. A pound coin, an oak leaf, a Phillips screw. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. First sight, it's odd, strange, a one-off. Pull back the camera. Who is this Jesus who prays these words? As more of Luke's gospel comes into view, we start to notice something startling. This Jesus gets called Lord. And in Luke's gospel, the same Greek word Lord translates the main Old Testament word for God. No less. The God of Israel. Jesus is Lord. The God of Israel is Lord. More than that, over and over again, Jesus does things and says things that the Jews believed only God could do, like redeem Israel. Jesus is the one said to redeem Israel, but only God can redeem Israel. And you follow this thread, see what's going on. This Jesus is the God of Israel in person. The God of Israel in flesh and blood, walking this earth and breathing this air. Who is this Jesus who gets hurt but doesn't send the hurt back? God himself. Not simply a good man arresting the cycle of Israel's hurt, but the God of Israel coming to rescue Israel. Who is it who's breaking the cycle of Israel's hurt? Not just a man, but the God of Israel. And now let's go for the bonus point. Pull the camera back further and take in more of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And we find this isn't just God doing something for Israel, his people, the Jews. It's God doing something for the whole world, for you and me. Now we're getting the big picture. You begin to get your mind around this. I know it's too enormous, too overwhelming, as we were saying earlier. Or as you say on this side of the Atlantic, too awesome. Awesome. <laughs> For our little minds, how vast. But the center of it is clear enough. In some indescribable way, the hurt of the whole world is focused right here. Here, God in Jesus becomes a kind of lightning conductor drawing the pain of the whole world onto himself. This is what lies behind that fantastic promise you would find in Isaiah, the suffering servant who would draw the world's agony onto himself. This is what lies behind that language of expiation and sacrifice that you probably stumbled over and wondered what to make of sometimes. Here the sin which infects the world gets absorbed by God, sucked away, not once, not just for a season, but once for all, forever. This is God coming in person to deal with a terrible cycle of sin and evil that's ruining your life and mine. Your rage at why you didn't get that promotion. 
your bitterness against the parent who scarred your life, your envy at why everyone else does so much better than you. The anger of an angry and broken world, God in Jesus takes it down into himself right here. He pulls it onto himself, takes it all down into the depths, down into death, down into the black hole of hell once and for all. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, behold, gaze at this death, because you are watching the death of everything that ruins this world. Everything that collective human rebellion could become, every radical wickedness in our society, everything the evil forces of the world could muster, all heaped onto Christ, absorbed and exhausted, God taking it into himself. That's what we need to hear behind these words, Father, forgive. A kind of love that refuses to recycle sin and send it out, but instead absorbs it and exhausts it. Let me put it very simply. What is the cross? A place where sin goes in and doesn't get out. When you leave things at the foot of the cross, as we say, take it to the foot of the cross, it will never be thrown back in your face to hurt you. Here sin goes in but doesn't get out again. What's a Christian home? What makes a Christian home different? Here, in this home, all sorts of stuff can go in. All sorts of hurt and anger and resentment and malice can go in, but it won't get out again in that form anyway. I came to faith, uh, well, the very last one I came to faith was a witness of a, a community of monks, Franciscans, who had this extraordinary kind of open house, which I'd never seen before, anything like this. I saw Christianity with that, and what was so noticeable was all the people who used to come here with the most horrendous stories, the most broken lives, the most painful memories, piled into this place. But that never got out in that form. It was absorbed, exhausted, taken. It wasn't simply recycled. What's a Christian church? A place where any amount of sin can come in and get dumped. Yes, process worked out, yes, but never let out as sin, never let out to hurt anybody. It's a place where gossip goes in, right? I know you're all such nice people, you don't gossip. Don't believe it for a second. Who knows what we said to each other a few minutes ago. Where all sorts of stuff can win, but it can't and won't and shouldn't go out. There is no other place in society. That's true. That's the problem here. <coughs> it is the one place in our society where the hurt of the world can go in and won't get out as hurt. Where the, where the person who feels constantly accused and is constantly tempted to recycle that and to turn it into some awful further hurt, but can find a place where that can be left How can this work? Because Jesus Christ is here. And what happened in him 2,000 years ago can happen in you today. You may know the song called Hurt that Johnny Cash took up at the end of his life in a famous video. 
We sang it to a video where for a split second we see an image of the crucifixion. If I could start again a million miles away, I would find a way. This is the way God has provided to release us from the hurts that trap us and trap the world. One last word about this first word from the cross. It's a prayer. What does it say? Father, forgive them. And extraordinary thought as this is, but it's built into the New Testament. Jesus is praying for us right now. And part of this prayer is, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Praying for us. Praying that we would be released from the cycle and the recycling of sin in our lives. That prayer is happening as I speak. Beautifully captured in this image of the Trinity, indeed, by German nun called Marlena Schultz. This is Jesus himself praying, the dove and the spirit, the arms of the Father. We are taken up into that prayer this very day. Now on that we need just to reflect for a minute or two, I'm going to play some music, and then that will lead us into more relax and open prayer. But remember, as we pray, he is praying for us. <laughs> 